The views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any company. Any content provided should be considered their opinion and are not intended to be interpreted as an endorsement. Today's topic is a look into the life of a scientist solving a problem. Welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nano Analytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Every session, we will focus on a different problem that our colleagues face in the lab and in the field. Some of the solutions will be a variation of ideas you may have heard before or even worked with. We will bring you these topics in a new and interesting way and introduce you to updated and thought-provoking results. We will talk about how the problem was dealt with in the past and what we're doing to solve the problem now and perhaps even envision future solutions. Join us as we talk solutions with a variety of scientists and technicians in many different industries in the Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast. Today, we're joined by Steve Whitaker, the Research Services Program Manager for the Hazardous Waste Management Program in King County, Washington. And also, he is with the Public Health, Seattle and King Counties. And joining us also is his colleague, Katie Fellows. She is Project Manager on the Research Services Team for King County's Hazardous Waste Management Program. Thank you both for joining us. You're in the King County area. Give us an idea, Steve, of that locale and help us understand your project. King County is the most populous county in Washington state, and it's the home to Seattle, Okay. where Katie and I are based. Okay, well, that makes sense because today we're talking about some of your work with Afghan refugees, right? That's correct. And and how is it that the Afghan refugees ended up in the greater Seattle area? Well, we are resettling Afghan refugees here in, in King County. I don't have precise numbers for you. I could, I could look that up, Cody. I could go to the refugee data sure, and figure that's out. Fine. But yeah, Washington State and King County is is resettling a large number of Afghan refugees. Excellent. I don't think it's because the temperatures are similar. No, <laughs> there's a <laughs> lot of differences. So I like to start by finding out why you do the science that you do. And Steve, if you don't mind, we'll start with you. What got you interested in science as a kid? Well, I think it all started probably when I was about 12 years old. And my uncle, Mike, for whatever reason, bought me a microscope for my birthday. And I was always sort of interested in biology, but I was always also really fascinated by wildlife. And Mm -hmm. we had sort of a goldfish pond in my backyard. 
And I would periodically go out to our local lakes and canals and like introduce different insects and things, most of which ate my mom's goldfish. So she wasn't particularly happy about that. But I thought, well, since I, I have this microscope, why don't I just see what's all in all this slime mm -hmm. that, is, that is all throughout the pond? And I was just fascinated by the fact that, that there's a whole microscopic world out there that most of us are just not aware of. And and seeing all these sort of protozoans, especially like amoeba and euglena and paramecium and all that sort of, it just got me hooked. I, I just, I just found it. I just, it just sort of ignited a passion for the natural world and trying to figure out how to understand it. That's really great. Now, I have to ask, your accent sounds like you're perhaps not from Washington State originally. Was this pond in a different part of the world or? Yes, uh, I, I was born and raised in the UK, specifically, mostly around London. Oh, very good. Excellent. So, Katie, what about you? What got you interested in science as a kid? Yeah, I don't have a, a fun story like Steve. I was raised by an engineer and a pharmacist, so I don't think there was really any question about what field I would go into. When I started college, I thought I'd follow in my mom and my sister's footsteps and go into the medical field. But after taking an introduction to environmental health class, as well as an epidemiology course, I switched majors from biochem <laughs> to environmental health. And I was, I was hooked on on public health. I'm kind of inspired by the more preventative nature of public health rather than medicine, which can be a little bit more reactionary and you don't get to take the time to really get to know the people that you're trying to help. So yeah, that's how I, I found myself working for Hazardous Waste Management Program. That's excellent. And then Katie, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would be your dream job or what would you most likely be doing? I would probably be a veterinarian. As a kid, I devoured like every single James Harriet book that I could get my hands on, even the ones that had just repeated stories about cats and dogs. I just really love animals. So yeah, that's probably what I would have would have done. Excellent. And then Katie, how long have you worked with hazardous waste management? I've been with the program now for just about three years, coming up on my three-year anniversary in about a week or so. Excellent. And then Steve, how long have you been with hazardous waste management? I've been there uh, about 12 years now. 12 years. If you weren't, Steve, working for hazardous waste management, what would you be doing? What is your dream job? Well, I, there's a couple of things that I always dream of doing. Once at one stage, I was I was very interested in doing some sort of international aid work, mm -hmm. but that was at a time, you know, before I had my even had my green card here in in the United States, and so it made it very difficult for me to work for an American aid organization because you need to have at least permanent residence, and so. That sort of that that sort of stymied that idea. Although it is something that I'm thinking about doing in the future, you know, once I retire from the county, 
that's and, that's amazing to yeah. well, be planning well, that as your retirement. Well, you know, <laughs> what's interesting is that, you know, we, you know, we, although we see like really significant issues with things like lead exposure and exposure to other toxic chemicals like mercury here in the United States, mm -hmm. the situation abroad is significantly worse for, you know, in some of our developing nations. So I feel like if I could take what I've learned here after a career of working in environmental health and apply it to some of these more sort of desperate situations internationally, I think that would be really rewarding. That's the amazing. Other thing, yeah. The other thing that I, well, on the other hand, I think it would be really cool to be ski patrol. There <laughs> we go. All, there we I go. I do a lot. It's again, sort of like providing service again, mm -hmm. sort of giving back. And uh, yeah, so I, I could really see myself doing doing something like that too. I like it. I like <laughs> it. That does sound that does sound like an exciting way to spend some off hours in retirement. <laughs> so the problem we're solving today is looking at uh, cookware for lead exposure for Afghan refugee children. And I was introduced to you guys when we were talking about the Bruker S1 Titan at a recent meeting. And one of our connections said, you know what, Steve has a really fascinating project they're working on. In fact, you guys just released a paper about the work you're doing, right? That's right. And Katie, also very instrumental in that work, as you saw, first author on the paper and really was responsible for doing all the hard work to, to, to generate all the data. That's correct. That was excellent. Katie, when you were putting the paper together, what was the genesis of the idea of the paper? Well... <laughs> You know, we became aware of this issue and, you know, Steve and I had never heard of lead being in aluminum cookware and, you know, in order to really understand the issue and also be able to offer a, a safer alternative cookware to the Afghan community, you know, we needed to understand how cookware becomes contaminated with lead, you know, how much lead might be in it, if, if they you know, cook out, cook with this cookware, how much of the lead will, will make it into their food. And so that's kind of how this study came to be. And, you know, obviously we had to write a paper about it since the findings were pretty significant. I had, I had you both kind of fill out a little questionnaire sheet for me. And as I look over it, I think we, we didn't really touch yet on the actual problem that you guys found. Steve, what was... What was the initial reason for finding that you were having a, a problem with lead for the refugees? Well, as you might know, Cody, childhood lead poisoning or the reporting of childhood lead poisoning is what we call a notifiable condition, which means that <clears throat> the labs that, that actually process the samples and record the data are actually responsible then for sending the blood lead data to the state departments of health. And then for kids who have lead data for King County, 
those data are sent to us. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things happened is that we saw an influx of high blood lead levels amongst Afghan children, you know, amongst King County children, in King County. And at the same time, we were looking at the statewide data and also recognizing that this was a statewide problem. And we have a team that does in-home investigations when they see children with high blood lead levels. And so they will go to the home with an XRF analyzer, ask a whole series of background questions and try to learn about you know, what the sources of lead could be, including using the XRF analyzer on you know, the sorts of things that we usually think about that are associated with lead poisoning, mm -hmm. like lead-based paint and glazed ceramic ware. We, we also know that there are traditional spices and medications and, and personal care products that can contain lead. What was surprising here was when our investigators used the XRF on some aluminum cookware that the Afghans had brought with them from Afghanistan. And there they found hundreds and occasionally thousands of parts per million of lead in the, in the Afghan pressure cookers and more typical looking cookpots. That, that, yeah, so that was part of what we called like a public health partnership. It was a partnership between staff in the hazardous waste management program and, and the public health nurse. Mm -hmm. And so we, on the research team, you know, we were learning around about these issues and recognized uh, pretty quickly that this is a previously unrecognized source of lead exposure here in the United States. And, and that's when Katie and I launched the investigation. When you guys launched the investigation and you found it was the cook pots, was it from residual items from cooking or was it just in the construction of the pots themselves? We, we, well, it's, it's from the construction of the pots themselves. Okay. Okay. And what we learned is that in many countries, minimum cookware can be manufactured from scrap metal. Okay. And, and you can imagine if you're taking scrap metal, it can contain all sorts of contaminants, including lead. Sure. You, 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 you find, if you go on YouTube, actually, and do a search on making aluminum cook pots, you'll see videos from around the world of sometimes whole communities set up near scrapyards where they have these very sort of like makeshift furnaces or cauldrons almost where they just dump all sorts of mechanical parts. And of course, you know, if they're throwing in things like, for example, like a, 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 a radiator from a car or a truck, they're held together with lead solder. And so the concentrations of lead can actually end up being quite high. Oh, yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, Katie, you're you're a tad younger than myself and Steve, so you may not know the answer to this, but how would people approach this before technology advancements like the XRF handheld to test these sorts of things? Well, I mean, before we had handheld XRFs, we wouldn't have been able to conduct real-time non-destructive testing on these cook pots. And, you know, any testing procedures would obviously be way more resource intensive. But for example, we would have needed to remove a piece of cook pot for wet chemistry testing. And this can be an issue, one, you know, it can be difficult, obviously, to, to remove a small piece of of metal, but also these traditional pressure cookers that the Afghan families are bringing with them, they can be family heirlooms. So we, oh, sure. we, we don't want to destroy them. <laughs> Alternatively, yeah, they're already, we, they're already uh, misdisplaced and you're saying the things you're using may be hurting your children. And by the way, we're going to cut it into pieces to prove it to you. That sounds very disruptive. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so alternatively, we we could conduct leachate testing, which is time-consuming and expensive as well. But, you know, we we did end up doing this leachate testing on the cookware, but this is obviously after we found that some of these cookpots contained very high levels of lead, and we wanted to better understand the exposure from cooking in in the cookware. Mm -hmm. How have you encouraged those affected to respond? Are you giving them instruction to use different pots and pans, or are you guys limited on the scope of what you're allowed to suggest? I don't, we're not, we're not limited on what we're allowed to suggest. I think the biggest problem, Cody, is that we're a small regional program and our our impact can really Direct impact can only be really local. Sure. Now, now we have teams that work very closely with community and community-based organizations that, that have been sharing information with the Afghan community. In fact, they have started what they call a cookware exchange program. Oh, good. Where, where we have managed to, so far, we have provided 100 Afghan families with replacement stainless steel pressure cookers free of charge. And, and I understand that we're on, in the process of buying several hundred more. Some other things that are happening is that we've learned that actually many in the Afghan community really like Instapots. Oh. <laughs> you know, and, and Katie has been doing some XRF analysis on the instant pots to make sure that they are safe for alternatives as well. So, and the good news is that typically stainless steel is a safer alternative. It does not contain the lead levels that you see in this scrap aluminum. And when Katie used the XRF analyzer on an instant pot, she found that every surface that comes into contact with food is stainless steel. Okay. So we feel confident in, in providing those to the community as well. The other thing that's happening is that our colleagues are in the process of working with community members to develop a video. 
where they are working with an Afghan person who's respected in the community, who's going to demonstrate how to cook Afghan food with modern pressure cookers. Oh, sure. One of the, some of the feedback we received early on from the Afghan community was that when using modern pressure cookers, their food was burning on the bottom. And the reason we think is that these traditional Afghan pressure cookers are really thick metal. And they have to be because they can be cooked, used, for example, over an open flame. Sure, yeah. And so they have to apply a fair amount of heat. And we think what's happening is that here in the US, once the folks have been resettled, they're like turning up the gas or the electricity on their cook pots and it's burning the bottom. So we recognize that it's really important to help them figure out how to use the modern pressure cookers. Of course, that wouldn't be such an issue with the instant pots, but we have provided 100 families with more traditional, you know, modern pressure cookers. So, so, so we, we feel it's important to give them some instruction. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I bet that that is a, an amazing change to how you approach cooking all the way around when you go from an open flame to a gas burner or even especially an electric burner. Mm-hmm. So when you were approaching the problem with the handheld XRF, what were some of the benefits of being able to go into the community to do some of the testing? Yeah, I mean, as as Dean mentioned, having the handheld XRF allowed us to go into the field and to go into these families' homes that had the you know cases of elevated blood lead levels in these children and look for potential sources of lead exposure. And additionally, then we can also, you know, use it in our lab as well to sample the cookware and, you know, easily take those results and analyze the spectra to make sure that lead's there. You know, we, yeah, we've, we've used it pretty extensively in this whole project. And what makes the XRF solution work? Well, it's, it's a simple enough device that I think, you know, one doesn't need a really heavy science or research background to be able to use it. You know, all of our environmental health investigators on our, our team can, can use the device and understand the results well enough in order to provide feedback to these families, you know, in real time, rather than, you know, having to come to the research team to, to figure out what, what it all means. So. And then also, you know, we don't have to take these samples to a lab and then wait weeks to provide these families with information that they need, you know, much more immediately in order to protect themselves and their children. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. What makes XRF solution better? That's, well, a, mar- that's a marketing question. You can <laughs> tell that's a marketing question, but I have to ask it. Yeah, we, we have true. We've actually had really great support from Bruker through this entire study, you know, from everything from learning how to read the spectra to working with data output, finding information on, you know, what does it mean when we get, you know, below limit of detection measurements? Yeah, we've we've always been able to email Bruker and get a response pretty quickly. And it's it's actually been really great to have have that support. 
Excellent. Now, Katie, we talked about the paper that you guys wrote and mm-hmm. our listeners can have access to that, right? Where, where was it published and what was the name of it again? It was published in the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology, or JESSE for short, back in May. And the title of the paper is Investigating Aluminum Cookpots as a Source of Lead Exposure in Afghan Refugee Children Resettled in the United States. Thank you. I'll make sure to have information on that in the show notes so people have access to that and it's available. Were there any additional surprises? You know, finding out that it was this aluminum cookware that contained lead and I guess surprising was some of the really high values that we found on some of these pieces. You know, as as we've mentioned, there's more traditional cook pots, but there are these, or more modern looking cook pots, but there are these traditional Afghan pressure cookers. And on some of the little vent pipes on the lid, you know, we found like up to like 60,000 parts per million lead, which was pretty surprising. You know, obviously, we didn't find that all the all the time, but you know those high readings were typically on those those vent pipes, which you know David looked a little bit more into, and it we think they're made of a of a different type of metal, potentially brass, something that's a little bit more malleable that can you know be shaped into a, a vent. Yeah, that's probably the most the most surprising. That's really amazing. Steve, did you have any other surprising elements of the paper that you took away? Yeah, yeah, and and actually Katie has done some work since that paper has been published too, and we have some new data. But going back to the paper first, I would say the biggest surprise for me was that Katie was able to purchase cookware, cook pots with extraordinarily high lead levels here in the United States. And so this is really sort of the public health significance beyond, of course, what's really important for the Afghan refugees is that anyone in the United States can go to certain retailers, especially online, and purchase cookware that has really, really high levels. In fact, some of the, the, Af- the Afghan cookpots that we tested that had the highest levels detected even via the XRF as well as through leachate were purchased from Etsy. Oh my. And wow. we've learned that there, there are there's at least one importer that is bringing in these cookpots from Afghanistan via Russia. Mm-hmm. And we once we learned that, that, that these types of cookpots and others besides were available in the United States, we immediately contract, contacted the Food and Drug Administration. And they did launch an investigation out of the port of Seattle to try and track down where these cookpots were coming in to the country. So let's see, what, el- what else was really surprising? We, we learned from the literature that there's a type of aluminum alloy manufactured in India um, called hindalium that has been associated with lead exposures in India. So I asked Katie, 
if she could find Hindalium cookware for purchase here in the United States. And due to some great detective work, she found it. And she oh, found no. it in on an Indian marketplace, again, on Etsy. Okay. And so, oh so far, you know, we haven't done leachate experiments on that cookware, but Katie has done extensive XRF analysis on it. And again, found thousands of parts per million of, of, of lead in cookware, again, that's widely available here in the United States. And in fact, she managed to purchase one, one piece of Indian cookware that's used extensively in South India called a kadai, which is a type of wok that was made from brass. And that contain, as you know, brass is a is a is a copper lead alloy, sure. and it contained tens of thousands of parts per million of lead. So, our concern here is that we've just uncovered the tip of the iceberg. It, it started with, you know, a focus on the Afghan refugee community because we have good blood lead data for refugees sure. due to CDC requirements. But in Washington state, a very small fraction of children actually get blood lead tests. So we don't really know what's going on, but we're seeing these smoking guns with, with cookware and other items that, that, that are used by, well, not only other immigrant groups, but the American population at large. So... If you if you do again a YouTube search yeah. on Afghan pressure cooker, you will see all sorts of US residents using these pressure cookers, especially for like camping. They're okay, becoming sure. really popular for outdoor cooking. So yeah, this is as I said, what we uncovered is the tip of the iceberg. And what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do right now is to spread the word as widely as possible, firstly through the environmental public health community, but then through retailers and the public at large about, about this, the, this issue. But it's early days because we only just published the paper. Sure. Katie is at a meeting today describing our results at the National Environmental Health Association. I was there last week. I was at a meeting called the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists, where people who focus on childhood lead poisoning prevention gather. Sure. And I shared our data there. And Katie is also slated to present at the American Public Health Association in Boston in November. So we're just starting to, to, to you know, get the word out and develop different sort of communication strategies. Oh, that's amazing. I've got to say it's a little bit terrifying. And I think I want to go back and have all of my pots and pans tested. <laughs> <laughs> and well, has Katie done any research on grandma's old cast iron skillet? <laughs> I might um, just need to go back to grandma's old cast iron skillet, perhaps. Yeah, I I don't think I tested mine, but Steve, didn't you take the XRF home and check a few pieces of your cookware? I, I, I did. I don't think cast iron is so much of an issue. Okay. It's typically lead-free. 
what's that what's of most concern is uncoated aluminum cookware. And, oh, and this okay. is a really important distinction. So most aluminum cookware that's available for purchase in the United States, most of it, high quality cookware has some sort of coating. Mm. It could be ceramic, it could be Teflon, it could be anodized. And you know those coatings will pre prevent the leaching of the lead out of out, out of the aluminum, but you know you, when you go to some international markets or you purchase inexpensive aluminum cookware online, it can be uncoated, and that is the biggest problem. And I will say that one of the limitations with the XRF is that it provides you with a total amount of lead in the cookware, right? So regardless of the fact that there's a coating on it that could prevent the migration of lead from the cookware into food, that's why the leachate experiments are so important because it mimics the, 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 the cooking and storage of food. But having said that, the XRF was invaluable in terms of identi identifying the problem in the first place. Sure. We also found a lot of good information online, and we've talked with the National Cookware and, and, and Bakeware, Bakeware Association, mm -hmm. putting together recommendations on how, how people who can't afford to replace their aluminum cookware can actually take care of it to, to at least minimize the amount of lead that, 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 that's released. And there are all sure. sorts of common sense suggestions. You know, for example, like don't use a scouring pad that's going to rough the, roughen the surface and increase sure. the surface area. Don't put aluminum cookware in your dishwasher that, 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 you know, which can actually promote corrosion and sure, heating. that makes sense. And, and all, all, all sorts of, you know, dry it immediately. There are all sorts of common sense things you can do if you don't have the resources to, to replace your aluminum cookware. And then you said that that was, what group is putting that information together? Or has that information available? Well, I found some information online and then I, Cookware and Bakeware Alliance. Okay. That's a national organization whose members, whose cookware manufacturer members, have to abide by certain standards to be part of the alliance. Okay. The other organization that, that actually certifies cookware for all sorts of safety issues, in, including the leaching of toxic metals, is called NSF International. And so currently what we recommend is that if you're going to buy cook, cookware, mm -hmm. look for cookware that has the NSF International logo. It's actually on the packaging for okay. consumer grade. 
but it's actually stamped on the cookware for commercial grade cookware. Okay, gotcha. So, and I bet none of Katie's Etsy <laughs> cookware had any of that anywhere located on it. <laughs> no. no, no. And in fact, Cody, the Cookware and Bakeware Alliance mm -hmm. is launching its own like certification scheme oh, okay. in the near future where it'll be much easier for customers to, to find out, you know, whether the, the cookware they're purchasing is relatively high quality. Excellent. Now, did I hear this is a bit of a aside, but have you run workshops or something for local area people in King County to test things or have you offered to test things for local people? I'll let, I'll let Katie take that because she's been really involved. We, we do, uh, well, not we, but others in Has Waste and sure. Public Health occasionally do hold community events uh, mm -hmm. where people from the community can bring their cookware or other items that they are concerned about. And we have staff there that is trained to use the XRF and they will test these items and yeah, let them know whether or not their items are contaminated with lead. They're, I think, really starting to ramp up now. We used to have these events all the time and obviously because of COVID, we couldn't hold them for a while. But yeah, they're, they're just now this summer, I think. Steve probably knows the number, but they're they're planning okay. quite a, they're planning quite a few of these. Yeah, I'm not planning on sending a whole <laughs> bunch of people to you, but it's nice to know that there are communities that are able to access the technology to feel more educated, feel safer about what they are using, what they are consuming. Have there been any interesting samples you guys have worked with? Your colleagues have worked with. So Cody, I have a I have a, 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 a interesting story from not associated with this project, but when we first got our XRFs, we had a colleague that, who was very much engaged with the jewelry making community, mm -hmm. and we we took our XRFs to a jewelry community meeting, and one person came up to me with this 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 piece and she didn't know what it was she didn't know whether it was worth anything and it was quite large and i took the xrf to it and after i saw the results i said i'll give you 30 dollars for it well it was it was 45% silver and 55% gold oh my goodness <laughs> it was quite quite a surprise but you know i don't think that Many people realize how much lead there is in lead crystal. Oh, um, sure. You know, at that particular event, people mm -hmm. brought along all sorts of glass beads and other things that they use for jewelry making. And as you probably know, the lead concentrations in, in lead crystal can be in the percentage levels. And mm -hmm. where it was really helpful was that we were able to tell these folks, it's like, please don't give these to children yeah. or keep them away from children because, you know, because children tend to put things like that in their mouths. Sure. And by the way, don't store like acidic drinks like wine or port in leaded glass crystal. Sure. A slightly different demographic from, from what we're talking about here, but it was a way that we were able to use our XRF to give some different public health messaging. Yeah. 
and and as far as these community events i can't i can't speak to exactly what they found recently but i know that that by using the xrf that our investigators have found very high lead levels in things like chili powder and turmeric uh, that is actually, they both end up being a really significant source of lead exposure in some, in some communities. We find, we find traditional eyeliner that can contain very high levels of lead and, and, and a number of other surpri surprising traditional products that, Again, mostly they come from the countries of, of origin of our immigrant and refugee populations. Sure. But occasionally, occasionally they're purchased online as well. I mean, especially, you know, spices. Sure. So it turns out that with turmeric, they add a powdered lead to it to increase the weight and of course increase the the the, the cost of the oh product my goodness in, in in some countries so yeah again you know we we get really surprised sometimes by the just the the, the contamination levels that we find in some of these more traditional products yeah oh wow well both of you thank you so much for your time this has been really eye-opening and i really appreciate you the work that you're doing to help the community and help the community at large and the the information you're presenting Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.